right. We got two left, two more weeks, and then finals are here, and then you're done forever. Not really. Hey, if you don't know me, my name's Austin, one of the guys here on staff. A few months ago, my family and I, my wife and three blessed children, we were driving back from the Lake of the Ozarks. It's where my in-laws live. Nana lives there. We are coming back from her house, and about 10 minutes in the drive, and a miracle occurred. I look back, and all three of my children, my six-year-old, my five-year-old, my two-year-old, they were dead asleep. That had never happened, ever. And so for the rest of the, the time back to Columbia, the drive was completely silent until I blew it. So we're driving through Jeff City. You know, you make that loop to get onto Highway 63, and as we're getting onto the loop, I look over, see the Capitol, it looks kind of nice, kind of a night. And as I'm looking, I'm looking, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I hit the rumble strip. I'm like, oh, God, no, no. And immediately I hear four cranky, annoying screams, one uh, from my wife and the three other kids. I had woke them up all of because I hit that darned rumble strip. It ruined the nice, quiet drive. And in that moment, I resented the rumble strip. Another story. I used to go to school at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and I would drive back and forth from Columbia to there maybe a thousand times in my life. And sometimes I'd have class at 8 in the morning. And on one particular morning, I'll never forget the day I almost fell asleep on the highway. I had to get up at about 5.30. I had about three hours of sleep. Uh, my oldest daughter, Adeline, was a newborn at the time. And it was dark. I was tired. Heading down that long straightaway, mile marker 164, and I dozed off. And I was asleep, and then <laughs> I wake up, I'm wide awake, my adrenaline's, adrenaline's pumping. I was so thankful for the rumble strip, because it probably literally saved my life. If that wasn't there, I'd have gone off the road, going 75, 80 miles an hour. Same rumble strip, but different response. Why? Well, it all, it all had to do with, with what I wanted. It all had to do with what I wanted. You see, on the way back to the lake, all I wanted was peace and quiet. What a nice, calm drive, and the rumble strip ruined that for me, and I resented it. And yet on the drive to St. Louis, I, I guess implicitly I knew it, didn't think about it, I just wanted to stay alive, wanted to stay awake, and the rumble strip helped me. Same rumble strip, and different response. Tonight we're going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Went through that a couple weeks ago, and tonight we're going to explore the reality that God is a father who disciplines his children. As we're soon going to see. Discipline is a lot like a rumble strip. And how we view that discipline, it depends completely on what we want most. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them, follow along on the screen if you want. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 14. I will be to him a father. This him is the offspring that is promised through David's line. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, these were great promises from God to David about this future king. That's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. A future king that's going to come through the line of David. And, and we know today that that is Jesus, the long-awaited king. But back in David's day, David himself and people around him, they weren't quite sure who that was going to be. Interestingly enough, a lot of people thought that these verses would refer to David's son Solomon. But regardless, we, 
we come across this very important and yet very difficult reality of the fact that God disciplines. He trains. He corrects. He rebukes. Why? Why does he have to do that? Well, he has to. He has to do that. You see, if you've been with us in this series through the books of First and Second Samuel, you know that God finds himself in an interesting situation of sorts. And it's interesting in that he's, he's committed to a group of people, the Israelites. And through this people, he is going to bless the entire world because the world is broken. The world is not as it should be. And he has decided in his love and grace and mercy to choose a specific group of people to live out that kingdom, to be a shining light, of king, uh, to create a kingdom of love, justice, and mercy. This is the road that they're supposed to travel on. And yet all this people wants to do is drive off the road intentionally. All they want to do is do what they think is best. They just want to look out for themselves. They want to do their own thing. They could care less about what God says. Came across this uh, video from uh, Lexus. Good job, Lexus. Captures this pretty well. Let's check it out. Choose your own route to the top with the new 2016 Lexus LX, offering a 383 horsepower V8, active height control, and four-zone climate concierge. The ultimate in refinement meets the ultimate in capability. This is the pursuit of perfection. I mean, who? let's go buy a Lexus, right? It sounds cool. It sells. And literally, if you couldn't hear what he said, it says, choose your own route to the top. Don't stay on the road. No surprise. Nobody's surprised to see that ad campaign because it sells. It's so common. This is the air that we breathe. Choose your own road. Go your own way. Drive off the road. This is the natural state of things. It's, it's, it's alive and well today, but it's been alive and well in every time and every place and every human heart. And so when it applies to Israel, over the course of years, person after person, king after king, everybody wants to drive off the road. If you hear last week, you heard Kyle talk about how David did that when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and, and of course, God himself. If you haven't listened to that, you should check it out on our podcast, Veritas Mizzou. It's a great sermon. But again, David wasn't the only one who did this. It was his kids. Solomon. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And we're told that these wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to God like his father David was. Another one of David's kids named Amnon, he fell in love with his half-sister, and he pursued her and pursued her and pursued her, and she told him no, and he was angry and bitter, and he forced himself upon her. Several decades later, another king, a guy named Manasseh, let's just read about him, 2 Kings 21. He was 12 years old when he became king, reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. Mother's name was Hephzibah. He, there you go. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Rebuilt high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. Here's the worst of all. He burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. This is the king of Israel. It's very sad. It's very tragic, very offensive 
to God. And yet we're not above it. We are not immune to driving off the road. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. James 1, 15, Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when that sin is fully grown, it brings death. What that's telling us is if our sin goes unchecked, unrestrained, without any rumble strips to keep us on the road, if that happens, we have the capability to commit those same sins that David did, that Solomon did, that Amnon did, and more, just like all the rest. That, that is why God disciplines and corrects and rebukes and trains. And yet he does it all out of love. He does it out of love as a father loves his kids, not out of hate. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you love Harry Potter, you know the infamous Professor Dolores Umbridge and her tenuous, shall we say, relationship with Harry. Well, let's watch this clip. No, not with your quill. Going to be using a rather special one of mine. No. I want you to write. I must not tell lies. How many times? Let's say for as long as it takes for the message to sink in. You haven't given me any ink. Oh, you won't need any ink. such a good villain. She does not love Harry. Duh. She could care less about his well-being. She's more interested in exacting revenge. She's more interested in maintaining her own respect. And now while it might be a little bit of an extreme example, I think it does capture just a little bit of what we sometimes believe about God, that he doesn't love us, that he's out to get us. But, but that's not the heart at all behind God's discipline. Let's watch one more clip. His discipline is like this. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> Wake up, gentlemen. It's late. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. All right, listen up. You will follow Doc, myself, and the other coaches. We're going to take a little run through the woods. If you get lost along the way, don't bother coming back to camp. Just hitchhike your hind parts on home. Any questions? Coach, it's a high school football team. We're not the Marines here. Let's go. Let's go.
Anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the... I know. I know. Try to end it just clean. Sometimes it doesn't work out. It's all right. God's, God's sovereign. Why did he do that? You know, his players were divided. They needed to be united as a team. And so he disciplined them to a place that was very symbolic of what happens when a culture of people becomes divided. He did that for the good of his players. That's the heart behind God the Father's discipline. He doesn't do it, doesn't discipline just for discipline's sake. He disciplines us because he loves us and he wants us to stay on that road. So for the rest of the time, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a very important and informative, quite honestly, passage in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to Hebrews chapter 12, because we can't talk about discipline without talking about and acknowledging and thinking about this verse. And as we do that, we're going to answer three questions. What does discipline look like in our lives? What should we do when we're disciplined? And what could happen through that discipline? So let's read the passage and we'll take the questions as they go. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in, sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son, his children? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son and his daughters. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces the harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. So what does discipline look like in our lives? How do we know when it's actually happening to us? Let's go back to verse 7. It says, endure hardship as discipline. Some other translations even say endure suffering as discipline. Now notice it doesn't say endure some hardship, endure most hardship. It just says hardship, and that means that any and all hardship in our lives is God's loving discipline, his training. Now if you think about that, at least for me on the front end, that's a little disheartening. It's a little overwhelming to hear that every single thing, every single hardship, every single suffering, whatever that may be, is God's discipline in my life, training in my life. That's a little much, right? But if you think about it, it's actually, in the end, freeing. It's freeing because that means I don't need to think about, is this God's discipline or is it not? Is it this or is it that? I'm freed up. If I can assume that all of it is God's loving discipline, then I can start thinking through what I'm going to do with it, which is what we'll get to in a minute. But I will, I will say this. There's definitely a spectrum of sorts when it comes to God's discipline. See, on the one hand, there are, we'll call them a little annoyances, right? Your, your car doesn't start. Maybe that's a big annoyance. 
car doesn't start. You can't find the right shoes to wear. You spilled coffee all over your Bible. You dropped your phone and got a crack in the case. Again, <laughs> spectrum here. Maybe that's a bigger deal than some of us. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there's some very serious and massive things that are going on that could go on. Another, another surgery, devastating family news, dealing with intense shame and guilt, dealing with consequences from some sort of sin. There's a spectrum there. Why some people are on one end, why some people are on the other end, I don't know. But all of it, all of it is God's discipline. All of it is God's training. Let's get to that second question. What should we do when we're disciplined? And I didn't say if, but I said when we're disciplined. Verse 8 of chapter 12 says, if you're not disciplined, and here it is, everyone undergoes discipline. Everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Every single person in this room undergoes discipline. Every single person on this campus undergoes discipline. Everybody in Columbia, Missouri, the world, everybody undergoes discipline. Like it or not, we are all experiencing it in some way because we are incomplete works in progress. We're incomplete works in progress. You see, in God's eyes, we are not the people he wants us to be yet. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. If our faith is in Jesus, not perfectly, but 51%, more than not, if our faith is in Jesus, then we're loved. We are accepted. We are saved. There's nothing we can be do to be loved any more or any less by God. And yet, we're not who God wants us to be right now. If we're still living and breathing, God's not done with us. In the early 20s, President Calvin Coolidge and Congress came, finally came to a deal to approve construction on Mount Rushmore. Construction started in 1927, and 14 years later, in 1941, it was finally complete. And pretty cool pictures about what it looked like during the construction. Yeah, is there anything? You can keep going, going through. Maybe I have them. Yep. These are the pictures of what it looked like. In the same way... As individuals and as a people, we are like Mount Rushmore in the process of being built. We are mountains under construction. He has approved our construction as individuals and as a community, but he's not done with us. There's more work to do. It would be ridiculous to start half that project and be like, okay, we're good. Walk away. No. There's a finished product in mind. So it is with God. And so knowing that we're being worked upon through discipline, through training. What do we do? Well, in, according to Hebrews, we've got to do two things. Here's the first. We need to accept God's discipline. Hebrews 12, verse 5. My son, you can say my daughter, my children, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't make light of it. That Greek verb that we translate to make light of, that means to have little esteem for to have little respect for. So if I make light of something, it means I'm not taking it seriously. It means I don't see the value in it. Here's what I find quite interesting and refreshing. The fact that this author has to command me and command us to actually do that, to not despise it, to not make light of it. It's because the author knows me. He knows my default reaction to God's discipline is going to be to resent it and to not want it to, to, to say, go away, I don't need that. Last week, on Tuesdays, because we have Veritas at nights, I only have a couple hours at home, and last, yesterday, 
last week in the afternoon, I decided, you know what, I have so much crap in my garage, kid toys, scooters, all that, it's time to clean it up. And so I'm on a mission. It doesn't happen very often. You talk to my wife. But I got on a mission. I'm like, all right, we're going to start organizing this thing. Well, first discipline, can't find the stud in the wall. Have you ever tried to do that? The stud finder does not work. Insert your own joke, whatever you want there. It wasn't working. So if you look at my garage, there's like 15 holes that failed to find the stud. So I finally found one. I'm trying to hold this huge two by four up with one hand. I'm having a hard time. Out walks my five-year-old son, Tyler. He asks for a snack. So I set the board down. I go inside. I give him a pretty good-sized cup, but half full of Cheerios because the guy just eats all the time. He decides that was not the right thing to do, and he starts screaming and yelling. He says, I want more, I want more. It's gone on and on and on, and finally I said, Tyler, you can have half a cup of Cheerios or no cup of Cheerios, and I just leave. Walk outside, keep working. Mic drop. Well, a couple minutes later, I have to go back inside, and I see the box of Cheerios is back out on the counter. What is with my kids and food? I don't know. Cheerios all over the counter, and I said, Tyler, did you get more Cheerios? And he looks at me, big eyes, uh-huh. So, okay, thank you for telling the truth. I'm really glad that you told the truth, but no more Cheerios for today. That was not what he wanted to hear. You would have thought a bomb just exploded. No joke, he starts, he chucks the Cheerios. He see every single thing that he sees inside, he starts throwing. So I have to literally physically pick him up, put him in his room. I go back outside, I hear him kicking the doors. Of the, I just stop, I go, I just wanted to organize a garage. Why is my son so difficult? Why is this so hard? In that moment, I resented God's discipline. I did not do the right thing. I was impatient, said some choice words in my mind, in my heart, pray for me. I don't think I'm alone. I hope I'm not alone. I don't think I'm alone. What, what are those hardships? What are those disciplines? What are those annoyances? What are those frustrations? What are those really hard things right now going on in your life? What are you tempted to resent? What are you tempted to avoid and run away from? Is it a friendship? Is it a group project? Is it the next step, whatever that is? If we consistently resent, avoid, and run from God's discipline, then we're not on the same page as God. When we do that, it shows what we really want. What we really want is a hassle-free life. We want a life free from responsibility, a life filled with entertainment, a life filled with these. And let's be honest, in this time, in this culture, in this society, it's really easy to do that. It's really easy to do that. If that's the life we want, though, then we're going to be in for a shock. If we want that and we're trying to be Christian and trying to be faithful, it's going to come to a head, and it's not going to go well for you and for me because God doesn't promise us that. God does not promise us a hassle-free life here and now. His kingdom is the exact opposite. Think about what Jesus said. He came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to live a hassle-free life, but he wanted to serve and sacrifice. His knee-jerk reaction was, what can I do for you? How can I help? How can I serve? He served to the point of dying for us and rising for us. So remember that we're under construction by God. We are incomplete works in progress. He's working us into something better and more glorious than we are right now. He's making us more like Jesus. So what do you want? Do you want the hassle-free life? Or do you want to be more like Jesus? Don't settle for the hassle-free life because it's, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. Don't try to be served now, but accept God's discipline. Now, that doesn't mean that we go looking for it. It doesn't mean we go seeking out hard situations. Just wait. It's going to come. 
But that also doesn't mean that we never ask God to take difficult things away. It's okay to do that. It's right to do that. But it does mean that if and when this discipline and this hardship comes, we don't run from it. We don't grow bitter towards it. We don't resent it. We accept it. We embrace it. We say, okay, I wish it weren't there, but I, okay, I get it. These disciplines are the rumble strips on the road that are meant to keep us awake, meant to help us stay on the road. So we need to accept the discipline. The second thing we need to do when we're disciplined is that we need to endure the discipline. Let's call a spade a spade. Hardship, suffering, it sucks. It sucks. It's okay to admit that. It's painful. It's not easy. It's not natural. And thank the Lord that Scripture says this. Hebrews 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. It's difficult, and yet there's a purpose for it. And because there's a purpose for it, we need to endure it. In verse 5 and verse 12, God says, do not lose heart. We will be tempted to lose heart because it is difficult. Don't lose heart. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. That assumes that arms and knees are not strengthened, that they're weak, that they are almost not going to endure. And God says, no, don't do that. Endure it. And so what do you need to endure? What do you need to keep going? If this is your busiest semester, maybe your next semester is going to be even busier, that's really hard. I hope it goes well. But work hard. Endure it. Is your living situation really difficult? Uh, I'm sorry. I wish it weren't that way, but endure it. Whatever that looks like. Plans falling through. Hardship, whatever. Endure God's discipline. That's what he's calling us to do. Last question. What might happen when we get disciplined? What might happen through this discipline. We just read it in verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, but later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. If you have any sort of farming background, this is farming language, think about harvest time. Think about the abundance of food, the abundance of crops. That's the image that comes up in our mind. This is what is being produced in our lives through discipline. Good works. Ephesians 2, verse 10, says we are God's workmanship, God's people, individuals and corporate. We're created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created to be good. We know what good is. We know what bad is. It's not up to people's interpretation. This is what God is telling us to be. This can be known. And the intention of God is that this discipline would cause us to serve and to love and to bless the people around us, to make life better. If we left those relationships, if we left campus, it should be that people would miss us. They miss our presence. They miss us asking questions. They miss us empathizing. They miss us serving. We should be noticed if we're not there. A lot of you know what this is like. A lot of you have gone through hard things and then when you get around after it a few years later you want to go back and help people that were in the same situation that you were in I was a dork in high school I was made fun of I said over and over again sorry if you're getting tired of it I was a dork in high school and now I have a heart for the dorks I have a heart for the geeks I have a heart for the socially outcast because I that was me 
I knew how hard it was to go through that. And what happened? I grew in empathy for those people. And now I have a heart for them. I want to I try to help them. Not that people like that need saving, but just to empathize, to say, hey, how are you doing? Make them feel like a person because that didn't happen to me a lot of times. This is what happens. I don't think that's crazy. I think we all know what this means. And so think about what, what does God want to do through your discipline? What has God done through that discipline? What good works does he want you to grow in? I hope you've heard me and other people say this a million times. Here's a million and one. God is on a mission to bless the entire world. The entire world's broken because of sin. And he wants it fixed. He wants sin gone. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to play a part in that. He's doing that through us, and he wants and he expects us to do good works. Not to earn his love, but as a response to the love that he's shown us. As the worship team, music team comes up, I want to read just one more verse in Hebrews. It's in chapter 5, verse 8. So although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. To be a part of God's people is to be an incomplete work in progress. God's working on us. Because we need to be worked on. We need to be shaped. We need to be formed. He's disciplining and training us in love. And here's the deal. He's not asking us to do anything that he himself has not already done. He knows. Jesus knows what it means to be disciplined, to be trained, to be worked upon by God. He knows those rumble strips in your life right now, whatever they are. Because he's hit them too. He's gone over them too. And so because of that, leaving here, ask Jesus. Ask him to help you accept God's discipline, whatever that is. Ask him to help you endure God's discipline because that's what you're made for. And that's what we expect. And so I'm going to pray in just a second, but we can turn the lights off. Why don't you go ahead and close your eyes. I did this a little earlier, but let's, let's do it again. Tell God, talk to God about what What's the discipline in your life right now? What are you going through? If you haven't thought about it, ask him that right now. Let's tell him right now. Ask Jesus to help you accept that. If you're running from it, tell him. Ask him to help you to accept it, to embrace it to endure it. Not just yourself, but other people. Who are the other people that you know are going through hardship right now? Pray for them. Heavenly Father, you are our Father who disciplines us for our good. We need it because we are tempted to go off the road. We don't want to. When we're thinking rightly, most of us, when we're thinking rightly, we don't want that. Give us hearts that want to stay on the road and help us to accept and endure that discipline. And as we do it, help us to look to Jesus. Thank you so much that you are committed to us as a people. We look forward to you coming back. It's in your name we pray. Amen.